from KQED. Hey, this is Tanya, host of Truth Be Told. Before we start this episode, I want to talk about the term people of color. We use it a lot to describe who this show is for. I'm a black woman, my producer is Korean Spanish, and my editor is South Asian American. We're women of color. But let's be real, the of color part is hella problematic. Sometimes it feels like a way to erase blackness. But for this show, we use the term with intention. It's a small but significant attempt to reclaim people of color, to bring it back to what black women activists in the 1970s envisioned. So with that in mind, let's get into this week's episode, which is all about how we identify and feeling enough. There's this scene in the iconic movie Selena that really speaks to the question we're taking on in this episode of Truth Be Told. We got to know about Oprah and Christina. Anglo food is too bland, and yet when we go to Mexico, we get the runs. Now that, to me, is embarrassing. Dad! And we got to prove to the Mexicans how Mexican we are, and we got to prove to the Americans how American we are. We got to be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans, both at the same time. It's exhausting. Man, Edward James almost breaks it down in this clip. What he's saying speaks to what it's like to be a person of color in the United States, even if you were born here. The back and forth of dual identities where you're not quite seen as one thing, but you aren't that other thing either. It can have many of us asking, am I Latina enough, Asian enough, indigenous enough, black enough? Am I enough? Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Truth Be Told, I need your help. You know, usually when I tell people I'm Mexican, I was born in Mexico but raised in the U.S., um, they say, oh, well, you don't look Latina. You don't look Mexican. So sometimes I feel like I'm not Latina enough, like my Mexican identity is sort of stripped a little. This quandary comes from someone we're calling Am I Enough? And to explore this, we call up two brilliant badass women in East L.A., so I'm Mala Munoz. And I'm Dios FM. And we are Las Locatoras of Locatora Radio. A radiophonic novella, which, which is, is a really, really extra way of saying... A podcast. A podcast. It's a podcast. You know, I would steal that if you all hadn't already done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're Latinas, so we just couldn't, like, leave the name at podcast. We, we had to have, have a little flourish. To be super extra about it. You know. And we call it a radiophonic novella because there is a narrative arc to the podcast and to each capitulo, and it really has to do with just our lives and our lived experiences. Diosa and Mala joined us from the community studio Espacio 1839. And it's a happening place. So you'll sometimes hear people and music in the background. So our question comes from a woman we're calling, Am I Enough? Dear Truth Be Told, I am a Mexican-American woman living in the Bay Area, but I was born in Mexico. I moved here when I was two years old, and I identify as Latina. But I have found that depending on where I go, I've always had to perform or act out my Mexican-Latina identity in some way. All this to say, sometimes... It's made me feel like I'm somehow not Latina enough, which is really kind of confusing and painful because it's like, why won't my own people see me? You know, usually when I tell people I'm Mexican, um, they say, oh, well, you don't look Latina. You don't look Mexican. And then if, when I talk Spanish, too, my accent is not from Mexico. It's like Americanized. So then I get embarrassed. And sometimes I don't even want to talk Spanish with my own like Latino Mexican friends that are here, you know? So I get a little uncomfortable and just kind of detach from that a little bit. Like my Mexican identity is sort of 
stripped a little. Like I want to be confident, but sometimes I get a little intimidated. It's hurtful. It's a little hurtful. Truth be told, what can I do to better understand this? And how can we navigate these situations when they are happening? I, I definitely appreciate the the piece about depending on where you are, mm-hmm. right? Like reception of you will change. Um, but I think that also speaks to something too about being like ethnically ambiguous or being racially ambiguous and having that fluidity because I think that folks who are, you know, um, unmistakably, undeniably black or unmistakably, undeniably, you know, brown and indigenous and of color, you know, are not necessarily going to have that fluidity. Like I've experienced that too. You Absolutely. Know, like every single time I've ever been to New York City because I went to college in Massachusetts, I always heard from men of color in particular I always heard, oh, like, what are you? Are you mixed with something? And and th- this sort of thing that's supposed to be like a compliment because it points to some type of right. like ambiguity. Yeah. You know, like yep. those things have happened to me. Right, right. Like that's a compliment. They're like they're saying that to you like it's a compliment. Right. Yeah. And, and what they're doing is they're putting down my community in an, a, a false attempt to like lift me up. Right. And mm-hmm. so I have to also stand in that and say, well, this is because I look the way that I do and I'm light skinned and I have to reject it. You know, I have to reject it and I have to know that this is not a positive thing. And I think that there's some work, personal work that has to be done there as well and understanding mm-hmm. like that fluidity. This isn't our favorite topic, but it's because of the way that it's usually like the energy when a, when a Latina, a Latinx person says, oh, I don't feel Latina enough. The energy behind that is kind of off sometimes. What I mean is like often like I feel that folks who say that and I can and this coming from a place of experience are coming from a, living in a place of privilege as a, as a Latinx person. This person is likely to be someone who is an American citizen, who is English speaking and who's probably lighter skinned. And so instead of examining like the power dynamics in our community and the fact that, well, me having these elements is a humongous privilege over like lots of other members of my community. And I remember kind of having those feelings of maybe this is what it feels like to think I'm not Latina enough. But what I was really identifying was like discomfort over the fact that community members who maybe like were not citizens or who did have a Spanish accent who that when they spoke or who spoke um, fluent Spanish, I felt dumber, right? And like less quick-witted and less able to communicate in multiple languages. It wasn't not being Latina enough. It was pointing out that like there was a lie in this like American dream, Americanization. I'm not act better in any way. It's actually pointing out a feeling of inadequacy and lacking when we're not growing up in our home countries in some ways. Yeah, because you're you're basically saying too that you have to own up to your privilege. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the I mean I sympathize empathize with this person that says, you know, it sounds, you know, really painful for when she says why won't my own people see me. I think if anything for me growing up, more of my coming to understanding of being enough of something has definitely been more through my sexuality than as opposed to my latinidad. I was outed when I was 15. Um and because I am uh, very femme, I'm very femme presenting, I very much felt that I wasn't queer enough. You know, there are privileges to having being perceived as straight in, in many spaces. And at the same time, there is feminine visibility within the queer community. So I, I very much had a phase when I was, you know, wearing the, the rainbow flag or I had a rainbow flag bracelet, right? Because it was very over the top because I wanted people to know that I was of the queer community. Um, and then later on, understanding 
those things don't make me queer, right? And my uh, identity transforming, uh, identifying as once a lesbian to then queer to then bisexual doesn't make me any less queer and it doesn't make my experience any less authentic based on who my partner is. So I think that for me has been much more of a conversation with for myself and within my family has been my queerness. So I like, you know, want to honor that honor her and that feeling that she's having. Um, but it very much is rooted in her privilege, you know, that she has that option to really flow in and out of spaces without being seen. And we forget or ignore the fact that we have members of our community who are black or who are Asian or who are Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's tons of community members who are not going to be seen and recognized. But the question is, why are you not being seen or recognized? Is it because you're Afro-Mexican? Are you not seen as Mexican because you are white looking? Or are you not seen as Mexican because you are Muslim, right? And so there's going to be like a root there. But if you are... um, Muslim and not being recognized as Mexican, that's not a privilege. That's that's a very violent erasure. Yeah. Right. If you're whiter looking and you're not being seen as Mexican, that's a privilege. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the United States, you know. You know, like identity is hard and it's a process. And when your community is not embracing you and accepting you, it can be really tough. Um, But we need to be a little bit self-reflective sometimes and ask ourselves, like, what are we giving the community? What are we giving the community? What's being reflected back to us? Because I like to give, you know, the community some credit sometimes in like, in, in like, I don't know. In, in giving you what you give the community sometimes, you know, communities can be toxic and communities can shut folks out and, and be um, mean and all that stuff and homophobic and, 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 and colorist and sexist. But sometimes we have to like ask ourselves, like, what am I putting in? What am I putting in and how is that being reflected back to me? That's what I would say. Yeah, I echo that. I, I would definitely say to have some self-awareness. Um, about the spaces that she occupies and navigates. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think Mala, you really just summed up like, really, what are you putting out, you know, and what is being given back to you? It's a journey. It is a a journey. Yeah. And you know, like I, um, identity politics can be very toxic. They can be very limiting. They can be very empowering, but they can also be very limiting. So again, you know, practicing the self-awareness, I think is very important. Up next, we keep talking with Dio Mala about everything from J-Lo, y'all know she shouldn't have done that Motown tribute, to Central American Twitter when we return. Our discussion about the am I enough question got Mala thinking that maybe we should be reframing the way we think about it. I wonder too if like the enough question is also like, can we ask ourselves like, okay, especially with things having to do with representation, like 
giving enough space to underrepresented members of our own POC mm-hmm. communities, right? Am I enough? But else, also, am I sharing enough? And am I put on too much versus someone else, right? Yeah. And because... Break that down a little bit more. Break that down. <laughs> That's important. There's something that needs to be grown out there, but there is a lot of space sharing that needs to happen. Like, I think of, oh my goodness, like... J-Lo. We love J-Lo, but it's like enough J-Lo. Yeah. You know, she's had a <laughs> she's had a really long career, a mm-hmm. wonderful career like she but she did a Celia Cruz tribute and it's like she's she has had enough space and enough yeah. visibility. She and, did the Motown tribute. And she didn't and need she to not, take should not have done that. You know, and that's the yeah. same community. That's that you know, Latin American Caribbean like why is is the space being so limited right now so i would like us to ask those questions in the future when we're having the enough conversation mm-hmm. yeah absolutely cuz there's so much privilege in that space for opening it up for those that you know that are not at the table absolutely jlo could have definitely said hey look at all of these afro latina creators or look at all of these wonderful people of color who are creating things that you don't know about but I want to bring them up to the front absolutely because yeah. you know we we see the same people almost being like the gatekeepers of the Latinx community mm. like JLo being one of them Sama Hayek mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know there's many more but them in Penelope particular Cruz. Penelope Cruton she's actually not even Latina she's Spanish no but she gets, she's she gets yeah. pegged as, Span- as Latina and yeah. the other one from Modern Family oh Sofia Vergara oh. Sofia Vergara I see I want more for her I really do, but it's like... I do too. And they all kind of look the same. They all kind of look the same. And it's like, is that even your accent or is that just your performative accent? Sure. Is what I wonder. That's a whole different conversation Mm -hmm. about accents and representation. Mala, you brought up language earlier. And for our question asker, I think that's a big thing for her. When I talk Spanish too, my accent is not from Mexico it's like Americanized. So then I get embarrassed. And sometimes I don't even want to talk Spanish with my own like Latino Mexican friends that are here, you know? I think this is important too to talk about on a community level, especially when we think about like Mexicentrism and how Mexicans can be really like sticklers and really kind of, um, what's the right word, can be sticklers about like language purity and making fun of like other Spanish speakers and Spanish accents. And in LA in particular, a lot of um, like Central American Twitter, um, a lot of Central American people who are very active on Twitter um, talk about how there's like this language hegemony in LA in particular. There was an article out in the LA Times not too long ago about how, you know, Central Americans in LA often have to pretend to speak Spanish like Mexicans in order to get jobs. So I can see really yeah Mm -hmm. because mexicans can be kind of oppressive yeah well i think you know within any latin american country you know nationalism can be so harmful and this is one way that it it manifests is in the language purity um in in my family you know on my peruvian side it's you know i i'm i'm too mexican and on the mexican side i'm like oh you know she's peruana or whatever so very much being in that kind of in between and, and it's something that I embrace right um, because it's, it's who I am and it's a part of who I am but definitely that language purity it I, I 100% agree that it's it is rooted in Mexicentrism but I think also in nationalism which is a part of every Latin American country I would hope that a future um, where we you know folks within the Mexican community can unpack our Mexicentrism um, and actually 
you know, build and coalesce with uh, other Latin American folks, Latin American descendants, especially here in the U.S., um, because I think that the Mexicentrism within our community um, really inhibits us from growing as, as individuals and then as folks within a community. What advice would you give her um, as she navigates and comes into this herself? So for me, the only thing that got me to overcome like my language barrier and just start speaking the Spanish and just doing it is I also recognize like if I want to connect to my community and be like widely accepted or even just accepted and embraced, even in just my family, I need to try. <laughs> like I have to try. I have to put myself out there. I have to be willing to sound awkward and I have to like be willing to be corrected sometimes, you know, um, and just kind of like embrace that humility in some ways like I'm making an effort here and even if I stumble I'm still like working on it um and that's been my process and also just owning it too like I'm a pocha and I talk about that all the time like yeah, that's your brand I'm that's my brand I'm like sorry I'm a pocha and this is how I talk but <laughs> yeah. you understand what I'm saying yeah you know but that's just been my own process to each their own you know I think, too, like the conversation about like we're in the United States. Right. And the conversation of am I Latina enough or am I Latinx enough, I think is also just a very U.S. specific convo yeah. because it, the, this identity of Latino, Latina, Latinx is really only a U.S. identity. Mm -hmm. Like if you go to any of, you know, a Latin American country, there is no discussion no. about, oh, we're Latinos. It's, oh, we're Mexicans, we're Dominicans, we're mm -hmm. Salvadorans, you know, we're Peruvians. Right. And it's a U.S. identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just inherently is. Yeah. And Latinidad is an inherently U.S. concept, yeah. you know? So there's no way to do it wrong, I don't think, mm -hmm. in my opinion. What Mala is saying about U.S. identity got me thinking about how I view myself. When I was a kid, I had these flashcards of Black civil rights leaders. And when I'd go through them, I'd always stop for a beat and stare at the Marcus Garvey card. His Back to Africa movement made me long for a connection to the continent. I still have that longing, but I've grown to feel a lot of pride for who and what I am. A Black American, a tapestry of people who have been here for more than 400 years. Mala feels the same way about her heritage. Like, I'm third-generation Mexican-American Chicana, but I feel like if you are existing in the United States, you are just, and you are of, of Latin American descent, I think you can automatically tap into this Latino identifier because it doesn't exist anywhere else. Like it's to be here mm -hmm. is, is to be, is to be in this umbrella category. And that has a lot to do with history and like us, the U S census and yeah. how the federal government has categorized oh, yeah. us mm -hmm. over the years. You know what I mean? So I grew up in a household where it was very mixed. We were speaking Spanglish and grandparent is speaking to me in Spanish and I'm responding in English and go to any of my family functions. And that's just how everyone is talking. One person is speaking Spanish. The other is responding in English or Spanglish. And that's just the way that it is. And me learning that um, it's also about learning your history and how you came to speak the way that you speak, because my father grew up in 1950s uh, Bakersfield, California, where he 
used to see signs in storefront windows that said no dogs or Mexicans allowed, you know, and that parents would not speak Spanish in front of their kids because their kids would get beat in school and put in special ed. So there's a very specific reason why my dad did not grow up speaking Spanish. And then that trickles down to where we Mm -hmm. are today. That is a Latinx experience. That is a Mexican-American Chicano experience. It's not inauthentic. It's not un-Mexican. It's not anti Latinx it is that is right so I am and I think you said like something like a perceived idea or perceived notion of what a quote like Mexican is right and and I would that would be my follow-up like enough to whom you know who who is it that you're not enough for you know yeah is it is it more of like a caricature understanding of what Mexicanidad is and Latinidad is that would be my question Oh yeah, for for truly. this for this person, yeah. It goes back to the question of performance. What yeah. does it mean to perform that identity? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you? What are you? What are you fabricating mm-hmm. to fit in? Mal and Diosa gave such useful advice to our question asker. Am I enough? And it really got me thinking about our own privileges when it comes to this term, people of color. I couldn't let them go without asking them about it. People of color is. A political term, right? And if you identify as a person of color, it's because you identify as someone who is not a white person and you identify yourself like in a certain type of political solidarity with other people who are not white people and that you position yourself as as someone who is seeking to balance the scales or you have an understanding of um, racism in the United States. I think that it's often sort of people are are, are lumped into the people of color um, umbrella without also navigating and understanding and recognizing like colorism and how racial hierarchies are established in the United States. And I think that sometimes if you are a person of color, um, we have to be cognizant too of erasing other people's experiences. Like I see sometimes like non-black Latinos Mm -hmm. talk about all people of color as if we experience the same things and really um, erasing anti-blackness as its own force and experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's very a useful term. I think that there are some useful connections to be made, but we have to be careful with it because we can also do a lot of erasing yeah. of the realities of of like xenophobia and anti-blackness. I can identify as a person of color, but I can never and would never compare my experiences to like my undocumented community members or black community members because it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that I've seen a shift in, in language from f- from folks where they will, when talking about community members or just communities, I've seen the um, black, indigenous, and people of color. Like, I, I've seen them, it's like B-I-P-O-C. So I've seen that become an acronym. And I think that that's, it serves the purpose to really name the differences, but still trying to create some type of solidarity um, in a kind of politicized organizing space. But naming the differences is also important, right? Because then we're not erasing folks. To break this down a little more, I decided to visit author and journalist Jeff Chang. We met in his office at Race Forward, a racial justice organization in the heart of Oakland. He's written a lot about what it means to be a person of color, how it's rooted in resistance. Our histories are not the same. Native genocide, 
slavery, enslavement of folks of African descent are not comparable to the immigrant experience. The term people of color, in that sense, hides over a lot of those types of things and masks over those types of things. And yet it also expresses a kind of sense of an identity that is also very much rooted in the Bay Area, this anti-colonial idea, this sort of resistance to imperialism, this resistance to the ways in which whiteness has been employed historically to actually exclude folks who are not deemed white. The notion of people of color isn't so that we can replace white people with people of color, right? It's that we can actually recognize the harms that have been done to people of color so that we can have a society that's equitable and just for all. And I really think that that's something that we have to grapple with and struggle with. You know, those of us who are not black, who are not queer, who are not women, who are cis, who are able-bodied, we have to recognize that we have privileges in those kinds of situations. And so the point is not about trying to attain some perfect kind of performance of Asian-ness or Chinese Hawaiian-ness or that kind of thing. The point is to be able to live and be as human and, as, as, and express yourself in all the ways that you can possibly express yourself. There's no absoluteness. Like, we shouldn't try to live in pure worlds. It's, it's, it's really about trying to understand what it means to be able to attain a sense of wholeness and happiness in one's own skin. Those of us who are identified as people of color, it's about moving past this dead end, this cycle of hatred and revenge and war and segregation and separation of people into those who are superior and those who are inferior, right? It's not about creating new systems of inferiority and superiority of access and denial of access. It's not about that at all. It's about moving out of that, that binary into something brand new. Well, we got a lot of work to do, y'all. And we have to deal with questions of power and privilege. But like, let's fight the power and privilege where it lies. And let's not police each other in our attempts to become. You know Damon Young, the co-founder of the site Very Smart Brothers? Well, he recently wrote a book called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. And that really sums up my feelings about my identity. I'm blacker and bolder than I've ever been. And it's true. There were a lot of internal and external battles to get here. So, to Am I Enough? As Mala from Las Lacatoras said, what you are is uniquely Mexican-American. And that in itself is its own identity. Embrace it. And you know what? We're often talking about having difficult discussions with white people. But it's really important that we, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian folks, continue the legacy of solidarity that Jeff mentioned and talk to each other. So this conversation isn't over. Hit us up on Twitter and tell us about your Am I Enough stories and how you're getting through those feelings. I've got a few I'll be sharing over there, too. Just add us at Truth Be Told Show. On our next episode of Truth Be Told, how do you deal with well-meaning white people who wear the concept of being woke 
as a badge of honor. Tanner Colby wrote a book a couple years ago called Some of My Best Friends Are Black. And he was like, I live in Brooklyn at the time. I voted for Obama. And he's looking around, he's like, yo, do any of us actually know any black folks? That's next time on Truth Be Told. And while you're listening on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, YouTube, or wherever you get your shows, please take a second to leave us a review and a rating. It helps other people find our show. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Christina Kim and edited by Sandia Dirks. Our sound designer is Enrico Benjamin. Thanks to KQED's head of podcasts, Julie Kane, KQED's managing editor for news, Vinnie Tong, executive editor of news, Ethan Lindsay, and chief content officer, Holly Kernan. A special thanks to Espacio 1839, not only a clothing and bookstore representing the culture of Boyle Heights, but a community radio station in the heart of East L.A. Truth Be Told is funded in part by a grant from the California Wellness Foundation. With a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, the Foundation's vision for every resident of California is to enjoy good health and experience wellness. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley. Okay, the last question I have for you, <laughs> and how it ended up being the last question, I don't know, but what is a multidimensional hoe? Yes, thank oh, you. The best question, <laughs> yes. Oh, the best question. Yeah. There's so much that goes into it. Yeah. So first of all, hoe can stand for heaven on earth. Yes. We can start there. That heaven can be our, on earth. That can be our launch Heaven path. on earth, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think to be a multidimensional hoe is like to reject the confines of like patriarchy and rape culture and slut shaming and slut shaming and femphobia and to say like we can be our full like human sexual selves and everything else mm-hmm. and I think at the core of multidimensional ho is like claiming our selfhood and our autonomy and that no matter what like we don't deserve it's speaking back against rape culture. We never deserve to be harmed or abused or thrown away yeah. because of this this categorizing. You know, like this is about reclaiming the body and also like reclaiming the right to defend the body from harm, um, especially sexual harm. So I think that's where a lot of multidimensional hoe comes from. Being a hoe is all about teaching and spreading knowledge. Yeah. 